2: Remember the good old days?
3: Well, for me, that means before the internet. Uh, But we go back a little bit further in this episode.
2: To those good old days, where everything was made of iron or wood and fueled by coal.
3: But we'll hear in this episode about exactly how good those days might have been.
2: But before we get to that, we'd like to remind you that Big Picture Science relies on listeners like you... For support,
3: And we've made it easy to support us through Patreon, where once you join, you can donate a little each month to help keep the show in production.
2: Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and sign up. It's quick, it's secure, and best of all, it comes with rewards.
3: Rewards for you as well as for us. Everyone who joins us on Patreon gets access to early and ad-free episodes each week. Even at the lowest monthly level, the $2 a month protozoa.
2: And if you give $5 a month, the tardigrade level. For you tardigrade types, you get access to exclusive bonus material.
3: Step it up to $10 a month and you become a velociraptor and you get your name read in the credits of our podcast.
2: Double that donation and you join our pod of Patreon dolphins who get to post questions which may help drive show content, but at the very least will get an earnest reply from me, maybe even an informative one.
3: Join us at patreon.com slash big picture science and thank you for your support. Thanks.
2: The future is so bright we have to wear shades and in the future who knows what those shades will be made of. The 21st century promises to be the century of new materials and fuels but our modern world was built with materials and fuels that at the time were very new. They made life better but there were also downsides. We were once excited about coal's promise to provide cheap energy and how iron would create indestructible buildings, bridges, and ships. But today, rust and greenhouse gases are formidable foes. Did we foresee the consequences of using these basic materials? And what lessons does that have for our future? I'm Seth Shostak.
3: I'm Molly Bentley. This is Big Picture Science produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, we look to the future by looking back at how three essential materials changed the world, the improvements they brought, along with the serious consequences that were not recognized at the time. This episode Iron, Coal, Wood.
2: the thing about that superhero Iron Man he's built himself a strong suit of armor powered so he can fly and outfitted with all sorts of nifty weapons he's supposed to be indestructible and sure that was a crowd pleaser truth is I am Iron Man but all you need to stop Iron Man in his tracks is to douse him with salt water How come no one ever talks about the threat of rust in the Iron Man universe? I mean, rust should be his kryptonite.
3: For anyone who has watched with dismay as the orange-brown stuff creeps inexorably across their car hood or even over a pair of scissors, you know why Jonathan Waldman says that rust has been called the Great Destroyer. Well, my
1: book is about all the lengths that we go to to stop metal from doing what it wants to do.
3: The title of his book is Rust, the Longest War. Mr. Waldman writes that the Pentagon dubs Rust the pervasive menace and spends billions fighting it. Rust has brought down bridges, sunk ships, and even threatened to cause the Statue of Liberty to drop her torch.
2: But we had high hopes for iron. Unlike its predecessors, copper and bronze, iron is strong. It holds an edge. You can make a knife out of it. The Iron Age was transformative, but like all metals, iron in the presence of oxygen, forms a new compound, one we call rust, or the more general term, corrosion.
3: The degree to which any metal is subject to oxidation is called electronegativity. That is, a propensity to either grab or give up electrons from another element. Sounds so benign when you put it that way. And yet...
2: Johnny, as we sit here talking, my car, which is sitting on the driveway outside my house here, it's rusting away. It's not becoming a better car. And yet there's no salt water out there. It might occasionally rain. If it's made
1: of metal, which I presume your car is, it's going to rust. It's a fact of nature, really. Uh, I don't know if I remember all of them, but I'm pretty sure that cars have suffered steering failure, wiper failure, brake failure, engine failure, failure. I mean, you name it, like the, the hood flying open at speed, like like rust is somehow acting on your car, whether or not you see it under the paint.
2: Okay, what about the things that I have outside that are not made of iron or steel? Are they rusting too? I mean, I have some, you know, uh, exercise equipment in the back, it's made out of aluminum tubing. Is that rusting? You use aluminum tubing to exercise? What are you up to? Well, I, I, I want strong
1: aluminum tubing around here, of course. <laughs> You just lift up metal tubing all day. Um, I think every metal except for four, like osmium, niobium, maybe tantalum, and one more corrodes. And I say rust because it's just a nicer word than corrode or oxidize. But every metal anywhere uh, on Earth is busy corroding.
2: And that's just the way it is. And listen, I want to take up another example you talk about, which I just thought was really fascinating. And it's such a prosaic item. The aluminum can, like, you know the ones in my fridge with all that diet soda right that aluminum can and you describe aluminum cans as the most complex product ever kind of thing and i you know to me it's just a can i i can't believe it's more complex than this computer here or, or my television or anything like that why is this so complex an aluminum can is kind of a giant
1: invitation for rust i mean we're filling them up with mountain dew and coca-cola and things like tomato juice. The top has to be able to be opened by a little kid and an, and an old lady. And it turns out that the little score line, you know, when you go, when you lift up the tab and he goes, that little score line is only a thousandth of an inch thick. Uh, and it's got to resist something like Coca-Cola under 90 pounds per square inch of pressure. Uh, and then like handle being shaken around and shipped and transported and stored and left in the warehouse for a long time. Uh, and then you know we make hundreds of billions of cans a year and each one of them
2: has to be perfect and they are i've never had a problem with a can of soda got to tell you other than drinking it but i mean it's you know i've never had one explode or do anything like that but but there are things that go wrong with the cans right
1: if you can think of a way cans can corrode they will do it that way they can corrode from the top down from the bottom up from the inside out from the outside in you know a warehouse a distribution warehouse for a beverage company might have pallets and pallets full of of canned beverages, and if one of those beverages at the very top of the pallet ends up leaking or bursting or exploding for whatever reason, that stuff on the inside now gets outside all the other cans and whole warehouses have been written off as losses on account of corrosion in the can industry.
2: Let's take a couple of examples of things that uh, corrode that you, know, you might not think about. And one of the ones that you use in your book is the Statue of Liberty. Now, I think most people are aware that the Statue of Liberty is clad in copper But it looks green. Why does it look green?
1: It looks green because it's been corroding for a hundred and, what is that, 34 years, 35 years?
2: I think many people who have not been to the Statue of Liberty and climbed up those tortuous stairs on the inside, uh, you know, the framework that holds it all together, that was iron. Wait, wait I, mean, I, want, I want
1: to back up. Torturous stairs, this from a guy who likes picking up
2: aluminum tubing? Well, yeah, I, 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 I can't, can't just leave it there. Yeah, okay. But, but, but the, the inside is this structure made of iron to hold the whole thing up, right? Yeah. And So how did that interact with the copper on the outside? I mean, there was something going on between them.
1: All materials fit somewhere on this electronegativity scale. And when two of them are in contact, uh, if they're pretty close to each other, electrons don't migrate very much. But if they're really far apart, the electrons really, really want to move from one to the other. And as it happens, iron and copper are a pretty bad combination. In fact, usually, well, up until then, we already knew that um, using iron was a good way to prevent the copper from corroding, uh, which really meant that the iron was being used sacrificially, which was never the intent of you know, the frame of a monumental statue.
2: Okay, so what you're saying is that the iron was corroding, but the copper was saved in the process kind of thing.
1: The copper was saved in the process, and maybe that's for the best because it's only as thick as a penny. Um, but when, they, when a bunch of um, researchers, scientists, techs started looking at the steel frame, they discovered that anywhere from like half to a third, maybe even two thirds of it was gone in all kinds of important places. And it was a serious
2: likelihood that the torch was about to fall down. So this was in the 1980s. The problem was recognized and they had a big fundraising campaign uh, run by that celebrated executive, Lee Iacocca. So did they fix it? They fixed it, and it was uh, it was an
1: incredible campaign. It was like the, the um, Iacocca headed it. He ran the largest fundraising campaign in American history. And they uh, they rebuilt, they replaced every piece. There were like 1,800 iron bars inside the frame. They replaced every one of the bars. They patched up all parts of the copper skin, including rust boogers and um, scabs and parts where the copper was punctured. Um, and then they really went to town on the torch um, using like the uh, a fancy lacquer like they use on a violin on top of gold leaf. No little chunk of metal has ever been treated so kindly.
2: You mentioned rust boogers. I, I, I suppose not everybody knows uh, what a rust booger is, although there's a photo of it in your book. Uh, tell us what a rust booger is. <laughs> So, what do you think it is? It's when, uh, you know, you got the giant statue of a lady, and when you look
1: up, uh, and you can you can sort of see up into her nostrils, the, the part of the copper right there was rusting, and there's no other way to describe it. I think that photo is absolutely incredible, and I guess you'll have to get the book to see it.
2: Okay, so the Statue of Liberty has been fixed. That is an obviously symbolic victim of rust, but it's, uh, you know, it's not the biggest economic threat from corrosion. Tell tell us about some of the other things that, that rust all the time that we don't think about that are a real problem. I think an easier
1: way to answer that question would be if you said, does this rust? And I'll just say, yes, it does. <laughs> but really, it's rust is such a big problem. It's uh, The cost of corrosion is something like 3% of our GDP. But what it also is, is the number one threat to the U.S. Navy. Um, it's also a huge threat to an aging pipeline system that we basically get all of our energy from. Um, it's regularly shut down pipelines for days. It's brought about negotiations with OPEC. Uh, at the height of our Cold War, uh, unknowingly, it it turned our most powerful nukes into duds, which on the one hand may have been for the best, but we wouldn't have thought so had we known. It it destroys bridges and, and kills people. I mean, it's, it's hard to overstate that the material
2: that we most rely on is is under threat from nature uh, everywhere. So, Johnny, if you look back at human history of the past couple of thousand years, you have the Stone Age, and then you have the Copper Age and the Bronze Age. And, you know, copper and bronze, I mean, they corrode a little bit. But then you had the Iron Age. I mean, so suddenly you were really confronted with a problem. Uh, surely the people that were designing iron weapons and tools... They knew very well that they were corroding, right? They knew that their iron wasn't behaving the same way today
1: as it did yesterday. I, there's a great, I don't know, quotes. There's a piece of writing from a Roman general who complained that um, basically some part of his catapult was causing more damage to his army than to the enemy because they were rusting so badly. It's still better than copper. It's still better than bronze. It's- well,
2: only because it's, it's stronger, right? I mean, that's why you use iron.
1: Right. It's, it's stronger. Maybe it's cheaper. It's easier to make. I mean, there's a million reasons why you might use it, or it's more prevalent, but it's also slowly, you
2: know, withering away. Okay. But, I mean, the obvious question, why don't we just build all that stuff out of stainless steel? It doesn't rust.
1: Well, stainless steel definitely rusts. It would also cost way too much, and we can't go around replacing everything expecting that we won't have to maintain it. I actually think the the proper approach would be to admit we 're going to have to get used to maintaining stuff so let's let's sort of suck up our pride and and go for it from a long term point of view instead of a like one and done kind of
2: kind of approach okay John well, look uh, there's a railroad bridge rather close to where I live, and it 's all covered with rust there's been very little maintenance onto it. what you know should I be worried about that? Should I still take the train into the city or is that thing <laughs> going to collapse? What should we do about it so I could have written.
1: A thousand chapters about materials that are busy rusting. But what I tried to do is look at different ways that we combat rust. Um, and there are only let's say half a dozen different ways we can do it. We can we can paint stuff to prevent oxygen from getting in touch with the rust with metal in the first place. We can galvanize it, which is coating it in zinc and basically giving away the zinc as a as a sacrifice. Um, we can electroplate stuff, which is kind of just a rich man's version of galvanizing. We can use rust inhibitors, which are kind of like really, really fancy paints. We can use anodic or cathodic protection, which is either pumping current into something or um, making sure the opposite doesn't happen. Um, I might be forgetting one or two more, but there aren't. Oh, then we can separate things. We can make sure that oxygen just never gets, gets in touch with the metal in the first place. And
2: that's it. In other words, just send, send the whole bridge into space. Put it into orbit, and it will not rust. Yeah, it'll be a really good commute for you on that train if that if that bridge is
1: actually you know a couple hundred thousand miles away.
2: So we've been talking about the downside of iron and some other metals as well, but we still build things out of iron. We turn them into steel or whatever. So it sounds like the trade-off was worth it.
1: It's definitely worth it. I mean, you and I are still here. We can we can talk over over computers that rely on circuitry that largely works most of the time. I mean, we can drink sort of. Uh, aluminum containers that don't weigh a lot and don't generally take eyes out. I don't know if is it worth it is the right way of thinking about it. If there had been some other material that we could have turned to, we we probably would have been like, yeah, the, you know, metal is a giant pain in the butt. Let's go to something else. But there is nothing else. Seventy five percent of the elements in the universe are metal.
2: That's what we got. And by the way, iron is the most stable of all the elements from nuclear point of view. And consequently, there's a lot of it, which is good. Wait, wait, wait. Iron is the most stable of all the elements? Yeah, yeah. You know, if you have very light elements, this is an aside, light elements like hydrogen, if you fuse them together, you get a lot of energy. It's called an H-bomb. If you have very heavy elements like uranium, you split them and you get an A-bomb. But somewhere in the middle, those two processes meet and they meet at iron. Iron is stable. That's why. That's why the universe has so much iron. Oh, that's, that's, you know, it's funny. I, I spent a lot of time
1: dorking out on metal. It's not something I'd ever heard before. And maybe that's because I was thinking of iron as anything but stable. Johnny Waldman, thanks for talking with us. You're welcome, Seth. That was fun.
3: Jonathan Waldman is the author of Rust, The Longest War. Our discussion about the history of basic materials is just getting warmed up, and nothing warmed up a 16th century house like a coal-fired stove. Saved money too. The trade-off? Nearly everything else had to change.
4: Suddenly you've got this stickiness on every single surface in your home. Every bit of textile, every bit of shelf, the walls, the floor, everything. And of course that stickiness means that all the other dirt is busily sticking to it.
3: So it's
2: filthy. Surprising stories of the knock-on effects of using coal that long predated skies filled with greenhouse gases.
3: It's Iron, Coal, Wood on Big Picture Science.
0: Why pay more for a separate CoQ10 supplement? Enjoy twice the benefits with Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced. super beats heart shoes advance are plant-based so you get heart healthy energy without stimulants for a limited time get a free 30-day supply of super beats heart shoes on all bundles and 15 off your first order by going to radiobeats.com and using promo code deal that's radio scom code deal <laughs>
2: We are looking in the rear view mirror at how three essential materials change society, for better and worse now one whose legacy will last far into our future.
3: I've always loved my grandmother's wallpaper. The tiny roses and leaves are comforting and cheery. What I learned only recently is that that seemingly simple, beautiful paper was a response to a profound transformation in how people heated their homes way back during the time of Queen Elizabeth.
2: When 16th century Londoners switched from burning peat, wood, or charcoal to burning coal, British domestic life changed in innumerable and surprising ways for centuries, such as the adoption of wallpaper. But not just that. The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Victorian Homes Changed Everything, is British historian Ruth Goodman's book about the antecedent to the Industrial Revolution. We tend to think of the rise of King Coal as primarily due to the demands of transport and manufacturing, but Ms. Goodman writes... The Early Rise of Coal is not a story about industry. It's a tale of domestic needs and comforts, of individual, private choices.
3: Few people embody the idea of living history more than Ruth Goodman. She lives in the past for months on end as part of reenactments for BBC television.
2: She used soot from candle wax as toothpaste on a 15th century Tudor farm and placed up a whalebone corset in keeping with Victorian traditions.
3: Ruth, you write that you've cooked more often over a wood fire than you have an electric or a, a gas stove. And so when you were learning how to cook with coal, you were approaching it as a novice in some ways, the way that a 16th century Briton might have. And you learned that there were a number of immediate and pressing issues. What were they?
4: Well, it was, it was really surprising. I, it completely took me by Well, just by storm, really. For a start, there was the dirt. I mean, it was just filthy in a whole new way. I mean, wood ash is dirty. It flies about a bit, but you can just wipe it off. Damp cloth, wipe, gone, all clean. Not a problem. Coal smoke and coal smuts that come from a fire are sticky and resinous. So every other bit of dirt sticks to them as well. If you just run a damp cloth, you just smear it all over the place. Suddenly you've got this stickiness on every single surface in your home, every bit of textile, every bit of shelf, the walls, the floor, everything. And of course that stickiness means that all the other dirt is busily sticking to it. So it's filthy.
3: What's interesting about that is coal itself, when you hold it, if you hold a lump of coal, as opposed to a lump of charcoal, coal's not all that dirty if you just sort of hold a lump of it. Charcoal is awful. Charcoal gets all over your hands, but coal doesn't immediately. No,
4: but the smuts, the smuts are terrible. And it must be remembered that many of us who have experience of coal fires in the 20th or the 21st century are having experience of coal fires that are in very well-developed stoves in things that we've, you know, we've worked on the technology and we've perfected it to make it as convenient as possible. When people were first approaching coal, they just didn't have any of that technology. So they were dealing with a lot of smut and a lot of, you know, like, released into the atmosphere of their homes.
3: Is it tricky to light a lump of coal? Or is is, how is it different from lighting wood or peat?
4: You know, it's not that tricky. If you've got nice modern, and by modern, I also mean late 19th and early 20th century cast iron stoves. Not that hard at all. But if you think of it, just pour a bag of coal on the ground, Trying to set light and make that burn, oh, you're going to be struggling. (laughs) Whereas you can do the same with wood and have no problem whatsoever. Wood sorts out its own airflow because you can stack it in such a way that you can channel oxygen through to the centre of the conflagration very quickly. Coal, it varies between which type of coal you've got. But basically, coal sits in a solid mass. Air has trouble getting in between the lumps because... The holes are much smaller. You can't organise it in the same way. It's a sort of more random heap. And then you've got the problem that many types of coal, indeed almost all types of coal, when they burn, the ash stays around the burning lump and therefore starts to restrict the oxygen
3: flow. Everything you've said about coal makes it sound like a really troublesome child. So, how quickly would would someone in the 16th century have grasped the advantage of burning coal? Because you paint an evocative picture of the English countryside, replete with so many other forms of fuel, uh, of biofuels, of grasses and woods, peat, even cow dung. Why would anyone even bring coal into the into their home for the first time?
4: Money. I mean, it's as simple as that money. The, the wood was ro- becoming unaffordable. Elizabethan London grew just shockingly fast. Within Elizabeth's reign, it quadrupled in size. So the prices was, was, were rocketing in Elizabeth's reign. If you looked in 1570, uh, which is well into her reign, Everybody's still burning wood. Everything's, you know, people are worrying, but they're all managing on the wood. And then in only 30 years, and I just, it blows me away how fast this happened, the city becomes a coal-fired city. In 30 years, one generation. And they do so because they could get cheap coal from Newcastle, and it requires less tending and that was really important within the home with a wood fire you've got to pretty much be there all the time you know to to pop a few more logs in to move things around you need to sort of be present quite a bit with a coal fire you can bank it up and walk away and i'm sure you can imagine yourself you know how different that must have meant to the sort of routine of people's lives to be able to put some food on and walk away and do something else was really valuable And and I think, you know, that might have been the tipping point for many a family.
3: Well, the premise of your of your study here is that it was the adoption of coal in the British homes that led to the adoption by industry, and we really expect it to be the other way around because so much. I mean, if you think of the space race, there are so many so many technologies that were developed for NASA or for the space race that then made their way into our homes. But so we expect industry to lead. Why was the adoption of coal domestically such a powerful force?
4: Well, I think what it happened was. The domestic take up happened very fast and very focused in one place. So suddenly a whole load of people have got a lot of experience. And they're quite an elite group of people too, because the court is focused in London and most of business and, and, you know, all the money is focused in London. So the very people who are having their lives transformed by this domestic revolution are the very people who are in a position to experiment and
3: to invest in the future. I see, I see. Did it also produce a different kind of heat in the home? It does produce a different kind of heat, but
4: you mustn't get too rosy pictured about this because there was a lot of trade-off going on. When wood was our usual fuel, we normally had no chimneys. In the early period, there's no chimneys. You have a fire in the middle of the room and the smoke just sort of wafts up and out. But what that means is that all the heat of the fire is contained within your living space if you put in a chimney now it might seem lovely at first you might think oh progress progress all the smoke goes up the chimney progress yeah but so does 70 percent of the heat 70 percent of the heat and suddenly your chimney is not in the middle of the room it's at one end of the room so as you can see in some ways putting in the chimney actually makes your homes a lot colder a lot colder so it's a sort of like you put in a chimney because cold smoke is worse than wood smoke So you move over to coal, you have to put in a chimney and then you have to burn more coal to try and compensate for all the heat that's just escaping straight up. So it's, you know, it's 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 not quite such a rosy view. It's all swings and roundabouts.
3: (laughs) Swings and roundabouts. The, The picture that you painted gives us an idea of how the interior of the home changed and also so did furniture. I was interested that the furniture started to come up off the ground a bit. You get legs on chairs and things. Why was that? Well. When you've got a wood
4: half in the middle, you know, the heat is moving out at a slow pace. The airflow is quite gentle and there isn't much of a draw or draft because you're in a big open space. The fire is not having difficulty getting oxygen. So the ground is a good place to be, particularly if you can insulate it with a layer of rushes so that you're, you know, up off the damp. If you put in a chimney, whether you burn wood or coal, if you put in a chimney, you create a draft and that draft comes in at ground level. So suddenly sitting on the floor, really bad move, sleeping on the floor, no way. Now you wanna be raised <laughs> up at least six inches so that, that cold draft goes underneath and you're above it.
3: Okay, so let's talk about more of how um, coal changed domestic life. So a coal fire oven needs to have a particular shape for people to control the heat. So the ovens change, but so did the, the shape of pots and utensils. Why did all of this have to change around a couple lumps of coal? It's extraordinary,
4: isn't it? It's, it's yeah. really in many ways a huge cost that, that came with the switch to coal. Coal burns much hotter than wood. So that's the first thing, and it also burns sulfurous. There's a lot of sulfur given off. The combination of sulfur and heat is very good at eating its way through metal. So whereas uh, old pots, had been made of bronze and they would last for generation after generation after generation after generation. And you could stand them on the ground on legs. That's what worked best, you know, with the fire, the logs underneath. These suddenly weren't working on a basket of coal. You, you can't really balance a legged round bottom pot on a pile of coal. It just tips all over the place. And you can't get enough coal underneath for the legs to really work. So suddenly you've got to hang your pot And the old pots were burning through very quickly as well um, because of this high heat and this acid sulfurous uh, fumes. So you get a change of shape of pots, you get a change of the metal involved in pots, and you also get a much higher throughput of pots. People have to keep replacing them, which, of course, builds a pot making industry.
3: Cleaning um, (laughs) was something that required a different kind of attention when people were burning coal. So so soap was invented but not solely for the reasons we assume, which is not just because coal smut is hard to remove, but that the other traditional sources of cleansers were no longer available and they came from the plant source. Is that right? That's exactly it. Before coal took over, we like everybody else in the world, right
4: across the globe, were mostly using wood ash as a cleaning chemical. When you take the wood ash that chemical is highly alkali uh, and will dissolve grease. It's also, of course, because it's highly alkali, very good at killing bacteria and indeed viruses. And that was our mainstay. That's what we all used, And I mean, right across the globe, almost every culture across the globe was using wood ash for this property. But when London went over to coal, London lost its wood ash. So Londoners needed a different way to clean their homes. And they turned to something which had really not been of much practical use before. They turned to soap. And a market creates a demand, and so people start making more soap, and an industry starts to grow. And we have exported this idea that soap is the best way of being clean
3: everywhere. You believe it. Less so during this pandemic. But yes, that's true. Okay, so you're talking about. quite
4: extraordinary. I mean, we just exported it. It came out of necessity, the need for soap. And we just
3: rolled it out across the globe. We invented an idea of cleanliness along with the invention of soap itself. Another industry that seems to be have been born was the wallpaper industry. That was fascinating. So, you know, down came all the, the tapestries and the weavings. That would be hanging on the walls that would provide some warmth, but also maybe a a splash of color. Why did those have to come down and why did wallpaper go up, Ruth? It's back to those smuts we were talking about. Um, I have to say, this is the smuttiest conversation I've ever had in my life.
4: (laughs) It is good and smutty,
3: isn't
4: it? So, again, you know, wood ash had you know floated up you could just brush it off if you you give you you gave your tapestries a good shake you took them outside and you gave them a darn good shake and yeah they came clean tapestries lasted for centuries we know that because we've got records of Henry VIII's court in which he's using tapestries that are over 200 years old still in his palaces they're still in good enough nick to be hanging on the walls and looking great in a palace coal Mm. was ruining them within about 10 years and in these open, (laughs) bare spaces, people were looking for something. And paper
3: stepped up. (laughs) Paper stepped up. And if it was getting too dirty because of the coal, you could just repaper.
4: Exactly. So much cheaper than retextiling. So much cheaper.
3: So Ruth, the use of coal required a lot of work, a lot of physical labor. And most of that labor was women's work. Women hauling coal in buckets and cleaning the ashes. And Few people would dedicate themselves to living in the hard-working, chilly conditions, n- never mind a Victorian farm, but of a 15th century farm. Yet this is your passion. Why? Yeah. Why is oh, that? I don't really know. I don't really know.
4: <laughs> I, it's a bit of a mystery to me, too. Um, I do feel very passionately that the history of ordinary working people, and particularly ordinary working women, has been woefully ignored, I mean, shockingly pushed to one side and, and, and belittled. I mean, to this day, I sometimes get people saying, oh, well, you're not a proper historian, are you? Because I don't do battles and kings and queens. And I just think, what? I mean, to me, it seems, you know, if I was to ask the question, you know, let's take, I don't know, perhaps the most important leader general ever, Napoleon. You know, everybody says, big deal, Napoleon. So in the world business, you know, like on a global scale, now we've got plenty of benefit of hindsight to know exactly what his impact was. Is his impact more important globally than the British habit of drinking tea? It's
3: not, is it? It's really not. Well, finally, Ruth, well, there's no denying that coal transformed our society, civilization. Of course, today we're all too aware of the detrimental effects of coal as a pollutant and a primary greenhouse gas contributing to climate change. Did anyone foresee the problem that we would have with coal, either in the 16th century, when it was first adopted in the home, or even in the 19th century, I guess in, in the case in Britain, in the 18th century, when it became a major energy source for industry? Did they see where this was headed?
4: Well, I don't think they understood it on a global scale. I don't think they could understood that it could do to the planet. They certainly did understand it on a localised scale. You get people moaning about the air quality almost from the beginning. I mean, John Evelyn, by the 1660s, wrote an entire book, Fumigatum, which is all about the foulness of coal smoke in London. Um, you know, the very famous phrase, isn't it? The dark and satanic mills. Um, People were aware of these issues, but they thought of it as being something very localized. But I don't think anybody until this last sort of 50, 60 years has really understood that it wasn't just a local problem,
3: that it was in fact a global one. Ruth Goodman, what a pleasure it is to talk to you. Thank you so much for being on our show. Thank you. It's really good of you to ask. I really enjoyed it.
2: Ruth Goodman is an historian of British social customs and the presenter of a number of BBC television series, including Tudor Monastery Farm. She is also the author of The Domestic Revolution, How the Introduction of Coal into Victorian Homes Changed Everything.
3: Hey! If your ears have picked up on the new music in our show, they are original pieces from composer Dewey DeLay.
2: Coming up, it's more efficient to burn coal than wood, which largely replaced as an energy source. But we should recall that both the Iron Age and the reign of coal were preceded by what you might call the age of wood. Indeed, fashioning objects out of wood may have been what gave us our big brains.
3: We branch out to discuss that next. It's iron, coal, wood on Big Picture Science.
2: It's incredible how much the world changed when coal became widely used as fuel.
0: You know,
3: Seth, I really enjoyed that conversation with Ruth, and I could have talked to her for hours. In fact, we nearly did talk for hours. She provided many more examples of how coal transformed society, more examples than we had time to include in this episode. Such as? Well, coal, the use of coal, completely changed British cuisine. And Ruth gave a funny example of what happens to porridge if you cook it too long over cold.
2: But our Patreon subscribers can hear that. If you're not a subscriber yet, well, here's another reason to become one. Go to patreon.com slash Science and join us. For only $5 a month, you get access to exclusive bonus material, like the outtakes from Molly's fun interview with Ruth Goodman.
3: <laughs> Find out why the Brits took to boiling As a primary cooking method. And support
2: your favorite science podcast while you're at it.
3: All of our Patreon subscribers get access to early and ad-free versions of each episode, as well as our gratitude. For the
2: price of a cup of coffee each month, you keep us in production, and we keep you informed, if not entertained.
3: The price of a cup of coffee in some parts of the country. (laughs) Just go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and sign up. It's quick, secure, and it's easy, and we really appreciate it. Thank you.
2: One afternoon, one and a half million years ago, our Homo erectus ancestors took a branch from an acacia tree and fashioned it into a handle for a stone axe or a wooden spear. Now, those may seem like pretty modest achievements, but they required a leap in imagination.
3: And that cognitive leap changed everything for human evolution. Now, we heard that phrase earlier, changed everything, as it pertains to coal. In this case, being able to use wood for fuel and tools may have even changed us physically. It may have prompted the evolution of a bigger brain. And that is everything in terms of what makes us human.
5: What the person's doing is making a stone tool and then imagining I will make a wooden spear in the future so that in the future I can hunt some animals. So it's very good evidence that these early ancestors of ours were quite sophisticated in their thinking and had what's known as some sort of constructive memory to uh,
2: imagine the future. Now, we've talked about King Cole and the Age of Iron. Well, Roland Enos, professor of biological sciences at the University of Hull in the UK, says, why should a fossil fuel and a common metal get all the attention? And the same goes for stone and bronze. Dr. Enos proposes, using capital letters,
3: for another age. The Age of Wood is the title of his book. His subtitle suggests why he wants the caps, our most useful material, and the construction of civilization. Wood certainly has seniority over iron and coal, as our work with it stretches back a million years. You could say that we're still living in the age of wood, although now struggling with some modern consequences of doing so. As with the other building blocks of the modern world, the relationship is complicated, but there's no disputing the fact that it's been transformative.
5: That's right. In fact, I believe that if we hadn't had trees, uh, humans wouldn't have evolved at all. We would still be basically like shrews because our whole bodies are actually designed in order to be able to climb trees, from our gripping hands to our binocular vision so we could see, find our way, and the very fact that we've got uh, separated legs and, and arms, the arms for gripping and the legs for moving. Those are all things we inherited from our ape ancestors.
2: Well, Roland, we talk about the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, and maybe today we have the Information Age, but I don't hear too many people talking about the Wood Age. Should we have an age of wood?
5: Well, I believe that the overarching story of humanity is basically the Wood Age. It started from even before the human species evolved, back 60 million years ago when the primates first came into the trees. It's gone on until possibly 100 years or so ago, when other materials started to really take over. But the big thing about stone, bronze and iron tools is that they are particularly good at making better wooden tools, making better houses, making better plank ships. So the whole story of humanity is one of using a whole range of new tools to produce the wood, which we've always relied on.
2: So it's a bit like food. You could say that every age has been a food age because we've always wanted food. So wood has always been there too. But the invention of bronze and then iron and so forth allowed us to work wood better. Wood was the raw material through all these ages.
5: Absolutely. I think that people get overexcited about things like the age of bronze and the iron because they're quite useful for making uh, weapons and people are rather fixated with killing other people. Wood has always been there, but its main uses are peaceful purposes for making things for agriculture. And I think that's given people a rather jaundiced view of them. They, They don't take wood into account so much.
2: You know, when I drive down the streets here in California, I see all sorts of new housing going up, condos as far as the eye can see, and the framing they do for that involves tons of wood, lots of wood, two-by-fours, plywood. I keep asking myself, here we are in the 21st century, and we're still building these things out of trees. Why do we do that? Why don't we replace that wood with plastic or metal or something else? Well, it's quite simply because wood has... Better mechanical
5: properties. Weight for weight, it's as stiff as steel and yet it's much, much lighter. So if you want to make a a beam, a piece of wood is much stronger for its weight than an equivalent piece of iron. And it will actually, because it's got so many air holes in it, wood's actually a much better insulator as well. So your home will be warmer in winter and cooler in summer.
2: What about the long-lasting properties of wood? Do we have any examples? I mean, can you think of any examples? of things that were made thousands of years ago out of wood that are still extant.
5: The best examples of, of long-lived buildings are the temples and pagodas of China and Japan. The oldest one is from about 600 AD, so they've been standing for over a thousand years. They're great benefit of using wood in China and Japan is that those wooden buildings are very flexible. Uh, They're designed to withstand earthquakes, and so that despite the fact that those countries are on uh, huge faults, they can withstand earthquakes of over 10 on the Richter scale, bigger than anything that's actually
2: happened. So let's consider more recent times, say the beginning of the 19th century. Europe was colonizing as much of the world as it could, to what extent was that motivated by the search for new supplies of wood? I mean, you hear about the gold. Were they at all interested in wood?
5: They were very interested in one particular thing made of wood, and that is the mast of their ships. The uh, typical three-masted ship of the 18th century needed huge trees over a 100 foot tall, and there weren't many of those trees left in Europe, and the British tried to extract those large white pine trees from the east coast of the United States and use
2: those. It sounds like wood actually played a role in the expansion of empire. I don't know any history book making a point out of that, though.
5: That's right. It was incredibly important for the British empire. Well, unfortunately for us, the British rather overplayed their hand. They got the backs of the Americans up by, rather than buying those Pines. They called them the property of the king and took them by force rather. And that really got on the noses of the American colonists. Uh, there was a massive riot about a year before the Boston Tea Party, known as the Pine Tree Riot, and that annoyed the colonists so much that that played a, quite a big part in the wars of independence. One of the flags on the ships of the American boats was in fact a picture of a, of a pine tree. So that wood was crucial in precipitating wars of independence.
2: Roland, we didn't comment on the beauty of wood, but anyone who does woodworking will tell you, well, I made this out of wood because I like the way it looks.
5: Well, yes, we've evolved to be around trees for 60 million years, so it's no surprise that we find wood attractive, beautiful grain. And people who work with wood, they they love using the material, They love getting the feel of it and seeing all the different beauties of all the different sorts of wood from the dark ebony through the beautiful red and brown of of cedar and oak to the white of poplar and and maple.
2: If I were to ask you what your favorite object made of wood is what would you tell me?
5: Well it's is my recorder, my treble recorder, which is made out of boxwood. It's a really beautiful sort of golden wood. I'm a very keen musician, and that's
2: very good for playing beautiful baroque music, handle, and bark. Let's talk a little bit about wood and the environment. I've seen renditions of what, you know, for example, Britain looked like before it industrialized, say a thousand years ago, and it was basically just covered with trees. It doesn't seem to be covered with trees anymore, any more than the east coast of the U.S. is. So what percentage of the forest that we might have found a 1,000 years ago still remains?
5: Well, 30% of the world is covered by forest nowadays. It used to be about 40 or 45%, so we've lost about a third. And the reason there are some trees in Britain is that wood is so useful that we've carried on managing woodland so that we can use the wood to make fires for industrial purposes and of course for shipbuilding and to make houses and other purposes.
2: But was this deforestation because people wanted to use the wood these trees provided or were they just clearing the land so they could plant crops? Well the main cause of deforestation has always been
5: Uh, removing trees so that we can farm that land. And what you tend to find is that the areas which are deforested are the best land, and that's the land which is covered by hardwood trees, trees like oaks, maples, etc. And people tend to leave the land which is covered by conifers because that doesn't tend to be such good land, and that's why in America it was those hardwood forests around the East Coast that were deforested first.
2: To what extent is this deforestation whether for agriculture or just to use the wood to what extent has that exacerbated the problems we're having with a changing climate because after all trees are a pretty good sink of carbon they breathe in carbon dioxide
5: well that's true nowadays the deforestation causes about a quarter of the current climate change that we're seeing nowadays. Uh, Nowadays, of course, a lot of that deforestation is occurring in the tropics because we've cut most of our trees down and now the deforestation is moving more to the tropics.
2: Was any of this foreseen? You know, I spent some time in West Virginia, there's an observatory there, and that observatory is located 10 miles away from a former mill town. Where they were cutting down the old growth forests of West Virginia to frame up essentially all the houses on the east coast of the United States. Now there was certainly a benefit to that. I mean the cities would not have been able to grow without that, uh, without that wood. But on the other hand the hills there in West Virginia are pretty barren and we have climate change to worry about too. Did anyone foresee the long-term consequences of this use of wood? Not really. People started
5: to worry about the loss of nature But the idea that that might cause climate change didn't really start to alarm people until midway through the 20th century. So uh, it should have been obvious that something bad would happen if we cut down all our trees. But we just saw trees as being there for our own benefit. And so we thought we can cut them down and build our important civilization.
2: Well, finally, Roland, will we ever replace wood? I am still amazed, I have to say. That I walk around here and everything, the roads, the buildings, everything is built out of wood or concrete, which after all the Romans invented iron. Well, iron's been around for a long time, too. Could wood be one of those things that, you know, a thousand years from now, we'll look around and say, I can't believe it. They made their housing out of trees.
5: I think that we will still be amazed a thousand years time that we're still doing that. I think people will still be using wood to make their houses and to make their furniture, to make all sorts of things around the home. It's cheap. It's light. It doesn't use lots of energy to make it. It stores carbon dioxide. And in fact, I think all the evidence is that we'll be using even more wood. And that's my hope that we'll be using even more wood
2: in the future. I'm going to invest in wood futures. Roland Enos, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you very much.
3: Roland Enos is a professor of biological sciences at the University of Hull in the UK, and he is the author of The Age of Wood, Our Most Useful Material and the Construction of Civilization. Well, Seth, what is the big picture here? The question that we ask at the top of the show is what lessons does history hold for tomorrow's materials and energy sources when we look at the past, which is iron, coal, and wood?
2: Yeah, well, look, any society requires two things to improve the standard of living, if you will. And you need a source of energy and a source of matter. You need something to build things with and something to power things. So, you know, we moved it to the modern age thanks to new sources of these things and they were available, they were cheap. But, you know, in the long term, when you had a bigger population, which these things made possible, suddenly you had problems. So we have to foresee you know, somehow look into the crystal balls and figure out what any new sources of material or energy are going to mean down the pike.
3: But there were different kind of problems, right? The problems of iron with the same problems of coal. And what Jonathan Waldman said about iron is that, yeah, it rusts, but we live with that. We fix it. We're never going to get away from iron unless, of course, we start using spider silk or something like that, which I don't think rusts. Does it, Seth?
2: No, I, I, as far as I know, talk to the spiders, but I don't think
3: so. <laughs> okay. But with coal, for example, um, the downsides are considerable and not something that we want to live with.
2: No, that's right. Coal has become a problem. It, it used to be a savior, and now it's a pariah, and that's, that's just the way it went. But there was no easy replacement until they came along with natural gas and then eventually other things, and so there are replacements.
3: So uh, any idea, Seth, what the building blocks of future societies will be? I mean, I mentioned spider silk. There are carbon nanotubes. (laughs) There are aerogels and things like that. So there are some new materials coming.
2: But I find it interesting that the most promising of these, as you mentioned, aerogels and, and carbon nanotubes and all that, they're all made out of the same thing that coal is made out of. Which is carbon. Which is carbon. Surely we'll do that. People have been promising, you know, these new uses of carbon. For decades, it hadn't yet happened yet, but you know, it will happen.
3: But well, we could not do this show without the high energy density talents of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin. I am executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
2: Thanks also to financial support
3: from Rena Shulsky-David
2: and Sammy David and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that investigates the composition of planets, moons, and asteroids, among other things. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
3: Extra special thanks to some of our Patreon dolphins, Grania and Andrew from Ireland and Mark Schindler from Honolulu.
2: As well as Patreon velociraptor Tom Hawkins in Fort Bragg. California.
3: Original music in this program was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard well you'll find links to them on our website bigpicturescience.org along with past episodes of Big Picture Science. This episode of Big Picture Science is called Iron Coal Wood.